This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week, we're turning to American foreign policy and how Joe Biden's long record helps us understand what's going on today and what we can expect in the future. In this week's episode, we're asking... How is the way American politicians think about the domestic politics of projecting American power abroad changed over the past half century? And what might this mean for the 2024 election? I hate to hear a senator of the United States calling for violence. I'm not calling That's for violence. That's what you're doing. I hate, to exactly hear, you're I doing. hate to hear an administration and a secretary of state refusing to act on a morally abhorrent point. Good morning, Heroism, danger, fear, all rolled into one. I believe that one of the reasons for the deep division about Vietnam is that many Americans have lost confidence in what their government has told them about our policy. The war on poverty at home and the war in Vietnam, we all know today that we are fighting one, but we're not winning either. The order to evacuate American nationals is given. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Okay. In those first few days, America will hit Iraq with a bombardment so intense that it aims to overwhelm Iraqi defenders. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. We have reason to believe the Russian forces are planning to uh, and intend to attack Ukraine in the coming weeks. On the brink of war and racing closer by the second. There's no longer a bright line between foreign and domestic policy. Every action we take in our conduct abroad, we must take with American working families in mind. So we're going to start, Helen, all the way back in 1972 when Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate. And obviously what hangs over American politics at that time, and I would say for decades to come, is the Vietnam War. Joe Biden is elected as a anti-war candidate at that time. He would go on to have very moderate positions on foreign policy throughout his career, and we're going to cover all of that. But Vietnam hangs over everything. It's raging in 1972. And the scar that it leaves on the American body politic is because of the body bags that are returning in extraordinary numbers, numbers that we hard to get head around today from a Western perspective. It's not really anything comparable, I, I don't think, until the Russian invasion of Ukraine in terms of the sheer scale of the death and destruction from in a major power conflict. And so that hangs over American politics and really defines 
attitudes to foreign interventions. So you do get interventions, American foreign policy interventions in Grenada, in Panama, but these are not at the same level. And then when you have something big that happens, like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79, the Americans aren't intervening directly then in the way that they'd intervened in Vietnam to stop the spread of communism as they saw it. You're doing it through proxies. You're arming guerrillas, in this case, guerrillas that would come back to bite America, very obviously. So this is how you understand the beginnings of Joe, Joe Biden's understanding of foreign policy. And it would shape him. It's, it's a sense of restraint of American power. So before that, you had this sense of America could do anything and saw themselves understandably as the, the wealthiest country that had ever existed, the most powerful country that had ever existed. And Vietnam is this event that brings them back to earth. That actually, you can't do anything that you want in the world, that there are limits to American power and there are extraordinary costs to interventions abroad. And that sticks with them, doesn't it? That sticks in the minds of all American politicians. Very much so. And I think that if we just situate the politics of the Vietnam War in that moment when Biden enters the Senate, so he actually begins being a senator in January 1973, a very important, well, two, I'd say, pretty important things happen that year is it's the end of conscription. I think we've mentioned yeah. this before. So the Americans are going to have a volunteer army. Mm -hmm. But also there's this piece of legislation passed called the War Powers Act and Biden is, is in his first year in the Senate then, and he's co-drafting or co-sponsoring, I think would be a better way of putting it, mm -hmm. that piece of legislation. And if we ask them what the War Powers Act is about, we have to go back to the, the Constitution itself because the, the Constitution gave Congress the authority to declare war. It made the, the president the commander-in-chief yeah. of the armed forces. And what had happened in the post-Second World War world is that presidents had asserted their claim, well, not really asserted their authority, claimed an authority mm -hmm. to effectively to override congressional authorization for war or deal with it in a most peripheral yeah. kind of way. Now, there was a context to that, which had been the way in which Congress had used its authority to make it really difficult for Franklin Roosevelt to take the United States into the Second World War until Pearl Harbor. In the sense then that there was a presidential backlash against that congressional restrictiveness. And the point where presidential authority over war really came to be very significant in terms of the shadows it was, would cast would be Lyndon Johnson. And in 1964, Johnson used an incident in the Gulf of Tonkin to have Congress pass a resolution which effectively gave him complete discretion to deal with the Vietnam question. So when Johnson took the decision to send troops, American troops, not just military advisors, into Vietnam in 1965, it was done without congressional authorization. And then it became clear in the Nixon presidency that Nixon and Kissinger had extended that war into Cambodia and Laos, not only without congressional authorization, but without Congress actually knowing about it. Amazing. So the War Powers Act was an attempt by what was a Democratic-controlled Congress against a Republican president, Richard Nixon, to try and claim some powers back. Now, and against themselves. Yeah, and in, it didn't actually way, yeah. as well, it didn't actually just sort of say, okay, it's now for Congress to decide when we're going to war, but it set out a timetable by which there would have to be uh, a vote in Congress. Is it like an attempt to curtail the imperial presidency? It's what they call it. But it also mm. strikes me that just how much of American politics life is a response to Roosevelt and to LBJ. I mean, we talked about it yeah. in the last episode last week about in domestic terms, but it just they, they, those two figures just hang over American politics because of what Roosevelt did d d domestically and obviously his foreign policy success in the Second World War. But what LBJ did in foreign policy Vietnam 
if that's the that's this dividing moment this clarifying it moment. is but i think that nixon is very much part of this story too and nixon actually vetoed the war powers bill when it first went through and then there were sufficient votes in congress to override it but i think if you think of it as the imperial presidency yeah use that term it's really comes to its head with both Johnson and with Nixon. And the War Powers Act was an attempt by the Democratic majority in the Congress to try to circumscribe ways in which presidents could use American power. And you see Biden power. and you see Biden there at the front of that effort. Yeah, even as a very junior Senator. And that gets to the ambiguity of Biden, doesn't it? So we've had we, we've talked about last week about his domestic record as being this kind of hedging politician who likes to be in the centre of the Democratic Party, is sometimes progressive and sometimes conservative. But on, on this foreign policy question, it's interesting to to pull up that string of kind of caution about American interventions abroad shaped by Vietnam. That seems to have stuck with him all the way up to, when would you say, up to the the Gulf War? Yeah, I think that in that sense, he's a very typical Democrat in yeah. in the 70s and 80s. If we leave aside the issue of the Carter presidency and concentrate on what the congressional Democrats were doing, a lot of it was actually about trying to use things around the War Powers Act and actually in regard to conflict in Nicaragua in the 1980s, passing some more legislation called the Boland amendment to try to restrict how what the executive could do because one of the ways in which the presidents responded to the war powers act mm. was to do things more covertly yeah which is uh, what reagan did iran contra iran contra and so mm. that that was true in iran it was true in in, Nicar in nicaragua i think that what we can say about this period like post vietnam before we get to the the gulf the first gulf war is that in this sense that the Democrats on foreign policy, at least in Congress, are more engaged with it procedurally right. in terms of who has the authority to decide things, the president or Congress, and using congressional authority to try to restrict the executive than necessarily the substance of that. And that is in part because the way in which presidents, particularly perhaps Reagan, respond to the War Powers Act is to do things more covertly. Yeah. So then you have Congress trying to check what they then consider uh, a new version of the imperial presidency, not done in terms of like fighting wars, but in terms of these covert interventions. And what then happens is that in 1990, when Iraq invades Kuwait, August of, 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 of 1990, and there's a decision that has to be made about whether the United States is going to fight a war mm -hmm. in order to end Iraq's occupation of Kuwait, that both the substantive question of like, is the United States going to go to war? And how is that going to be decided? Who is going to decide that question? Mm -hmm. The president or the Congress really come together. But at that point, in a way, I think you can say that the Democratic Party is still in the mindset, or the Congressional Democratic Party, I mean by that, is still in the mindset of the authority question rather than the the substance. So Biden question. Biden votes against the first Gulf War, doesn't he? He does, but he's just typical of the Democrats then. There were fifty five Democratic senators at the time. Forty five of them vote against authorizing the war. Interestingly, think back to what we we're saying in the previous episode about the new Democrats, the Democratic Leadership Council, the one person who actually stands out as being in the voting for the war camp because most of the new Democrats are actually in the with Biden is Al Gore, right? Okay, but if you look at the the language that's being used in those in that in the Senate debate in particular, it's very much focused around the importance of the Senate deciding when force is going to be used because the initial policy of the George Bush Senior Administration was sanctions. Yes, yeah. The war doesn't actually start until February of 1991. The vote in the Senate happens in, in January of 1991. And Senator Edward Kennedy said in, in that debate, or around that debate anyway, that going to war without Congress's consent would precipitate, quote, a constitutional crisis. Yeah. So the debate that's happening in 
921 is much less in some sense about the substance of how to respond than about the authority um, question. Because I think that there's, there is obviously a division between the Democrats in Congress and Republican President George Bush about when sanctions should be judged to be insufficient and American military force can be used. But it's so bound up with that question of who is deciding this question, us and the yeah. Senate in particular. Which is so the, bound up with the Vietnam War. Absolutely. Every- it, it's hanging as a huge shadow, I think, over this. Even though it's not going to be a war, it's not a war without casualties, but it's not going to be a war that is going to involve large numbers of Americans. I suppose they don't know that at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, in a, in a sense then, the, the first Gulf War lifts that shadow over American politics. It gives them the confidence that actually you can invade a country and you can get out and you can do it in a way that doesn't lead to the kind of quagmire of Vietnam. And this is, I mean, it, it is interesting to look back at it because Bob Gates, who became the defense secretary under Barack Obama and was, has been director of the CIA, Washington bigwig, and he says Joe Biden has been wrong on every foreign policy issue ever, basically. And he cites the, the first Gulf War as, as primary evidence in this, that Biden was against it. And this was the, in quotes, this is the good war. This is the war that America wins. It achieves its foreign policy objectives. It doesn't pursue regime change and, and, and all of that and wins. And and you can see that, can't you? Because I think actually Biden accepts that he made a mistake. I think he says, he says in 1993, I think I was proven to be wrong. Yeah. Meaning that Gulf War. But I think you could also argue though, that the substantive shadow is not removed by the first Gulf War. Right. Because of the fact that that Bush decides not to pursue regime change. This, This is a war that was primarily won by air power. And when there's the question of like, do they go further? in order to remove Saddam Hussein from power, they pull back. Yeah. So it's only partially lifted in a way. But then maybe that's enough. If you think Vietnam through the first Gulf War up until the the interventions that then follow in say in, in the Balkans to come and then obviously Afghanistan, Iraq and today, not an intervention as such, but you know, Ukraine, you have you have a shadow that starts to lift beginning with the with the gulf war and actually maybe biden though is not just him saying i was wrong but also him seeing that it considers a success and he he has to shift like he because he's constantly seeking that center of the democratic party well i think there's two things here the first of them is about the authority question which i think really is the thing that does shift after the first gulf war so there's a vote it's a year after the war when a resolution that authorizes the president to use continued military action against Iraq, which effectively means bombing, that not only does Biden vote in favor of that, but there are only two senators who vote, who vote against that. So this is basically going back to an idea of like extending the military authority yeah. or extending the authority of the president to take military action for unspecified purposes for quite a long period of time. So in that sense, it's quite at odds, I think, with at least the spirit of the, the War Powers Act. And as we know, through the, the 90s, there's a lot of bombing of Iraq yeah. that takes place, particularly actually in the 1998 through to 2002. Biden is quite comfortable with the, the use then of air power in a number of other um, mm-hmm. conflicts, particularly in the Balkans, but I th- the, the war against Serbia over Kosovo, obviously, yeah. most notably. But I think what's really interesting about that is, is, and this is where I think he's actually a little bit out on a limb, is that in the Kosovo conflict, Bill Clinton, the president, is really trying to draw a line and say we are not sending yeah. ground troops. Yeah. He actually has a, a quite a dispute about with Tony Blair, as I recall, about that. But there are two people in the Senate who drafts a bill saying that ground troops should be used if necessary. And one of them is John McCain on the Republican side, which we might expect because he's obviously someone who's a bit outside, but Biden does it with him. So through the 90s, you can see that Biden actually moves a bit ahead yeah. on the substance of fighting wars than where the centre ground of the Democratic Party is. In that sense, Bill Clinton's defining 
that ground, I think. Well, I think also he seems to have this idealistic streak in him about American power, city on a hill and all of that kind of stuff. So wars that he considers morally good, as long as they don't have huge cost in American lives, he does seem to be supportive of. So he was out there on the Falklands War as well, not an American war, but he was very supportive of Britain in the Falklands War, I think, when a lot of American politicians were hedging. And then he is he is out there when it comes to Kosovo as well. Whereas you, in the Gulf War and Kosovo, you had the British Prime Minister or the ex-British Prime Minister with Margaret Thatcher in the first Gulf War, who's pushing the American presence, trying to say, put some steel into them as, as she would see it. And Biden is is kind of with them in those cases because he, he considers them good wars. Yeah, I mean, the thing that think where we can say that the real turning point that brings, that really ends the Vietnam era, if we can call that, because I think there's still something of the Vietnam era in Clinton's handling of the Kosovo War. It's really about air power in the 1990s and a real concern still about body bags is that 9-11 happens. Yeah. And in the aftermath of that, then the willingness of American politicians across both political parties to tolerate the idea of body bags coming back goes up quite considerably. There's a belief that there will now be a higher tolerance for it. And in that sense, that the Vietnam era has come yeah. to an end. And it's interesting if we think about it in terms of the authorization of presidential action, Pretty much all the Democrats vote for the authorization. Yeah, just one, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. and it's not turned into this question about constitutional authority to act and whether the president has that or not. But what's interesting, and we're going to turn to this after the break, is that when it comes to the post-9-11 wars, the second Iraq war, that both of these assumptions become much more tested. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So getting back to Iraq, Helen, this is our defining foreign intervention, foreign war of our lifetime in the way that Vietnam was in the 1970s. I think it's interesting that Biden is already starting to be a bit cautious again. So he's been with the Democratic Party and, and everybody in American politics pretty much when it came to the Afghanistan war. But in 2002 and 2003, he's chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and he is pushing a resolution that would have changed the war in Iraq. He was trying to get Bush to limit Bush's actions to removing weapons of mass destruction without regime change. But he was defeated in that. So you already see a bit of caution in him. No, I think that what we can see in 2003 is that there is considerable substantive concern among the Democrats in, in Congress and perhaps the Senate in particular about whether to vote for this war or yeah. not. And in trying to push that resolution that you've just described, Tom, in a way that Biden is going back, moving back into that who has authority question yeah. around the War Powers Act, sort of saying, look, Congress needs to set some parameters for how this president is going to use American military power. Because, Helen, they've still got this act, this extraordinary act from 2001 in the wake of 9-11. It's called the Authorization for the Use of Military Force which just gives the president virtually sweeping powers to go and intervene anywhere 
to go after al-Qaeda. That act is, is still in force. And that is something that George Bush can use in 2003. So you're getting you're getting a bit of tension for the first time over the extent of that. But there is a vote, isn't there, in the Congress that specifically authorises the Iraq action because it causes the Democratic senators, including obviously Joe Biden, but also Hillary Clinton, considerable difficulty mm. in retrospect that they voted for this. Yeah, and that's why Obama is able to then, because Obama's not in the, the, not Senate in the Senate by that point. So he can campaign in 2008 with this sort of blemish-free record. And the benefit of longevity is that Biden can emerge as the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, but is also he's got a record to defend. And it's it's not quite, I think, what Bob Gates says. It's just one in blemish after blemish, but it's certainly not blemish-free. No, and I think, though, it's really clear that in the aftermath of the initial invasion, which obviously is successful from the American point of view, into the period then effectively of civil war in yeah. Iraq and the attempt to combat that with what came to be known as the, the surge, is that after the Democrats win the midterm elections in 2006, that they actually go back to that idea that what you do from Congress on foreign policy is set limits on how the president can conduct yeah. wars. So effectively, that the Congress under democratic control goes about setting deadlines for Bush to commit to the withdrawal of American troops from Iraq. Yeah, and this is then how you understand Biden's vice presidency under President Obama. So from 2008 to 2016, Biden, the most important role he plays in that presidency is in terms of foreign affairs. I've searched for a leader to finish this journey alongside me. A leader who sees clearly the challenges facing America in a changing world. With our security and standing set back by eight years of a failed foreign policy. Today, I have come back to Springfield tell you that I found that leader, a man with a distinguished record, a man with fundamental decency, and that man is Joe Biden. And you can understand why, again, because he is, he was the chair of that committee. And this is where he gets into the tension with Bob Gates, who is defense secretary. Bob Gates is Republican. But Obama has brought him in as defense secretary because Obama likes his realist foreign policy. And he clashes with Biden internally. And how they clash is that Gates pursues a more assertive, traditional American foreign policy. And Biden is far more cautious on almost every issue that, that comes up. So he is, he is opposed to the intervention in Libya, arguing that the fall of Gaddafi would result in chaos. And there's a book that both of us were reading, a biography of Biden, which he describes Biden's role as reinforcing the president's instincts for restraint rather than maneuvering around them. And he, he has the same instincts over Afghanistan. So when you had the surge that had been partially successful in Iraq under Petraeus, something similar was then proposed under Obama, a surge in troops in Afghanistan that Obama eventually authorizes, but Biden is opposed to that. And by, such is Biden's concern or restraint that he advises against the attempt, the successful assassination of bin Laden, arguing that if it hadn't gone to plan, Obama would be a one-term president. If we go back to the, the 2008 election for a moment and look at the way, as we were talking about in the last episode, that Obama won the Democratic nomination against Hillary Clinton, but also against Biden, is that he was able to label them as being on the wrong side yeah. about Iraq. That mm. they, he'd been in the Illinois state, so it didn't really matter, to be honest, what Obama thought about the war in 2003, but it did matter what Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden did. And Obama, in that sense, took that turn in the Democratic Party after the midterm elections in 2006 and said, we're moving back to being a sceptical party yep. about interventions, particularly in the Middle East, because it wasn't about all interventions. He wanted at that point to portray 
the Afghanistan war as the good war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Post 9-11 and Iraq as the... Which would cost him as the president. As the bad war. And I think it's also, though, interesting that he wasn't really very interested in following through on some of this, particularly where Iraq was concerned in terms of what it meant actually to get out yep. of Iraq, to have a deadline to be out before the next presidential election, which would be 2012. And quite early on, apparently, he says to Biden, you do Iraq, Joe. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want. I don't want to be dealing. You take the bad war. I yeah. don't want. To, I, I don't want to be dealing with that problem. But what happens in the wake of the Arab Spring is that getting out of Iraq becomes a lot more difficult than Obama imagined, and getting and, trapped in further. Exactly. Yeah. So again, they might get out before the 2012 election, but they're back in in 2014, notably. Uh, using air power really only against ISIS. Then there's the question, again, in the wake of the Arab Spring, about whether to intervene in Syria or not. And Obama regards it as a defining moment of his presidency. I think, again, we've talked about this before, the fact that he stands up to the foreign policy blob and says, no, I'm not going to do that, despite the fact that it was Obama himself who'd set a red line about the use of chemical weapons by Assad in Syria. So you have this sense in which there isn't any ability of a president, certainly of a democratic president, to commit the United States post-Iraq to large-scale military action. But at the same time, the issues have taken them into the Middle East in the first place aren't quite going away. Yeah, you can see Biden both having being aware of the direction of travel in American public opinion and and he's always aware of that and it's moving against intervention ever since iraq but also his own instincts i think are in that direction of caution as we've said and what he says just look at my notes here biden talks about syria and says the problem is our allies in the region were our biggest problem enlist people would say puts his foot in his mouth but another way of saying it is he's just telling the truth that the turks the saudis the emiratis they're pouring hundreds of millions of dollars and tens of tons of weapons into anyone who would fight against Assad. And that includes al-Nusra and al-Qaeda. And so Biden says this on record and causes a furore with the, all of those allies that he lists in the Middle East. But even he's basically saying what actually happened and why it was so difficult for America to get involved in Syria. And so, yeah, again, it's that ability that he has to see where things are going. But also, I think... When America is moving in that way, he does stand to benefit because he's kind of with them on that essential foreign policy conundrum of how you use American power. Yeah, I think that in one sense, things were made easier for him on that score by the fact that once you get to the 2020 election, that the question of military intervention in the Middle East was rather diffused by that point. And I think that that helped because it's clear if you go back to 2016 that Trump's ability to run against what he called the forever wars in the Middle East was part of his appeal against Hillary Clinton. Oh, enormously. I mean, yeah. it affects both parties, isn't it? You, it's very hard to, to win now a presidential election or, or to win the nomination from either party as a, if you were a pro-Iraq war. Yeah. And if we go back to the authority question, you can see that the Iraq shadow still hangs over this because we've seen in the last year or so bills going through the, well, effectively their repeal, attempts in the US Congress to repeal yes. the legislative authority on which not only the second Iraq war was fought, but the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and then the air bombing campaigns of the 1990s. And Biden and, supporting those. Yeah, efforts, and the language yeah. that's being used about this is if you take the, there's one of the, the, the senators it's a Democrat senator from Virginia, Tim Kaine, but he's done it also with a Republican as well, of like saying basically that it's important for Congress to reassert its authority over war, its constitutional authority over war, and it cannot do that so long as this authorization for presidential action in regard to Iraq is in place. There. So in that sense, I think that the story, if we try and get a big picture on it, is, is we're going back to some of the same things of the 1970s. I mean, Although that the form in which the Vietnam War took and the form in which the Iraq War took are, are rather different from yeah. each other, they both breed, ultimately, maybe across both political parties, a real political fear around fighting wars 
yeah. and a sense Ones in the with con- body bags that yeah, and yeah. the sense in the Congress that actually that they're not going to give presidents a free hand yeah. about these wars. And if you go back even to 2013, although Obama wanted to present this as his epiphany moment yeah. and saying, we're not going to attack Syria, it was also very clear that in the aftermath of the David Cameron's failure to win the vote in the House of Commons, or the, what was supposed to be only the first vote, but that first vote in the House of Commons on authorising British military action, that Obama then thought, well, he would have to hold a vote yes, same question. in the Congress and that he feared that he was going to lose it. And that's why, more than having an epiphany, it was the fact that he wouldn't have been able to get congressional authority yeah. that, restra- that, that restrained him. But what's interesting about Obama is that, yeah, there is an ambiguity about Obama in that, yes, he thought that he sort of opposed the blob, the sort of the, the Bob Gates of this world who would have, of course, tried to enforce that, that red line. But he was very happy to use American air power everywhere. There was there was no sort of he wasn't like a sort of soft liberal who didn't want to use American power abroad. He just didn't want to have boots on the ground. But I think you could say that on Syria it actually extended to using air power. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Certainly in September two thousand thirteen. Yeah, well, maybe he overcorrected in other ways. But um, you come back to Biden's presidency, and the defining issues, I guess, are Afghanistan and Ukraine in terms of interventions. And Afghanistan is obviously the war that he inherits, and it's a war that had been the good war once upon a time under Obama, and he had opposed Obama's surge, or at least been urging far more caution than Obama. And it was Trump who tried to end that war, but didn't. And it was left to Biden as president. And it's probably his most revealing foreign policy decision as president that he followed through with the removal of American troops at quite a lot of risk at the time. But in that speech that he gives defending that decision as it's as chaos is kind of unfolding in Kabul with the airlift and those appalling scenes as the Taliban are essentially surrounding Kabul or even taking Kabul at that time, haven't they? It's just the, mm. just the airport that they haven't taken. Biden actually reveals quite a hard side to himself at that moment. And he's quite angry, isn't he, with the Afghan government, the leader who had fled, the the failures of the Afghan army as he saw it to stand up to the Taliban. He 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 directs quite a lot of anger towards them and says that it's proof of the righteousness of his own decision to leave. If they can't even defend against the Taliban, then my decision has been vindicated rather than the other way around. So Biden just shows a degree of toughness there, which I think is quite telling. Now, he's very clear in that speech that he gives about the limits of American power. And he's very clear, I think, at least by implication, about the domestic political constraints yeah. about the the exercise of American military power. And in that sense, there's a kind of bookend between that Biden and the Biden of who first joins the Senate and the interlude, if we think about it in terms of Biden's career, then really becomes from the aftermath of the first Gulf War, really like 92, through to the bit of caution that he shows in relation to authorising the Iraq War. But his one decade of being sort of fairly interventionist, unconcerned about presidential authority, etc., is the 90s. Closely taxed America's own. Yeah, absolutely. Rediscovery of its own sense of opportunity or opportunity optimism about how it can use power. The only bit in the story, I think, that that is an outlier in terms of the relationship, the the big picture trajectory Hmm. with Biden is that willingness to use ground troops in Kosovo. Yeah. Otherwise, he tracks really quite well what's going I wonder if he thought that that was ever a possibility. I mean, maybe I'm being too <laughs> cynical, but you can you can be in favour of these because he's he's also come up with other plans, hasn't he, that never came to pass. Mm-hmm. Like he came up with the, this idea of dividing Iraq into three different federal zones, which then he got slated for, mm-hmm. for being essentially leading to the breakup of Iraq. I guess the long history you're always going to you got to especially as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, you're going to be putting forward proposals that don't necessarily stand up to scrutiny 
years later. Uh, and then we should turn to Ukraine because that's obviously the defining war at the moment. So when he makes that speech about pulling out of Afghanistan, he very explicitly says part of the reason is so that America can concentrate on the big picture strategic challenge that it faces. And I think he name checks both China and Russia at that time. So he would argue that it's not about withdrawing from the world and giving confidence to some of America's enemies that America is losing its willingness, its stomach to fight, to intervene and all the rest. That's the accusation that's leveled at Biden. He would say, no, on the contrary, by being bogged down in a war where there's virtually no American interest, core strategic interest, it's weakening our ability to face off against these these genuine strategic rival rivals. And then, so he would use Ukraine as an example of actually, look, this is proof. This is a, a war that has core strategic importance to America, and we can we can do more because we're not bogged down in Afghanistan. But I think if you look at his initial reaction to the Ukraine, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he's actually still in his quite cautious mode, yeah. which is to make it clear that the, the Americans won't be militarily engaging in that they'll be in, in Ukraine, they'll be supportive of Ukraine, but they're not going to back them with military power. Which uh, which had been Obama's position as well when he was vice president, yeah. no lethal aid. Yeah, it's, it's actually Trump who increases the amount of military support that's going to yeah. Ukraine prior to the invasion in, in, in 2022. Though, to be fair, Biden had increased it again from the autumn of 2021 because I think there's that strategic partnership agreement between mm. Ukraine and the US. Then I think the turning point is a, for Biden and or the first turning point, because I think there's another one for Biden and the Ukraine war is about six weeks in when it looks like Russia is a lot, lot, lot weaker than yeah. Yeah. The administration had imagined and they see or they believe there's an opportunity really to inflict a severe strategic blow on Russia. Yeah. And they really increased the amount of aid and military support going to Ukraine. Because both Britain and America had pulled out of their embassies in Kiev, hadn't they? Whereas the French had yeah. stayed behind. So both of us thought that the situation was worse than it turned out to be. And then you can see, though, I think that in the last months, he's back to being cautious. Think about what we were talking about when we were discussing the recent NATO summit, yeah. that it was the Biden administration that was aligned with Germany on not being willing to give a timetable for Ukraine's entry into NATO. And this raises a question, I think, about how we should think both about the Ukraine war and the domestic politics in the United States of these wars is, is that this is clearly not a war in which American soldiers are going to be sent to fight. Yeah. That this is not yeah, anything. Been from, absolutely there's, there's not, yeah. there's not anything like there's not Vietnam. It's not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. It's not even the use of American air. No. Power. This is a question about what level of support Washington is going to give a state fighting to protect its independence against Russia. Now, in one sense, then you wouldn't think that it, given the trajectory of history that we've been talking about, that it should be a political liability yes. for yeah. Biden in the upcoming in the presidential election next year. But it's not entirely clear that that is true. And what is certainly true, and this goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode, too, is if it's Biden versus Trump, you're going to have Trump saying that actually the Americans shouldn't be mm. committed to Ukraine in the way in which yep. that they have been. And then Biden is going to be defending the support for Ukraine. And it's clear that there's a certain kind of, if you like, anti-war critique that seeps from the Iraq experience into this Ukraine Absolutely. war, even yeah. though that they're really quite different from each other. But because there's become such a, skepticism about American military intervention, even one that stays in, even intervention that's not actually military intervention, but support for another state that stays in the box, so to speak, 
it's still got the potential to be at least potentially quite politically problematic. Yeah, would you say it's unique in that in that respect? Because I'm just thinking it's similar, I suppose, in grand strategic terms to Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Americans respond to it after a failed war of their own with military aid to your enemy's enemy to inflict a strategic defeat. But that that had cross-party support. It didn't become a major controversial issue. There's films made about it subsequently, despite even what went on to happen. Whereas Ukraine already is this divisive issue made so in, in some ways by Trump, but it's bleeding into American politics much more deeply than that. Biden's family are embroiled in it with this scandal of his son Hunter and his connections to Ukrainian corporate interests. So it really feels like it's become a partisan issue without any Americans dying in a way that I can't think of an obvious similar example. No, I mean, I think one of the reasons why that there's potential in the space in which we've been talking about post the second Iraq war is the cost issue. Yeah. Is, is that argument that has been made both within the, from the left of the Democratic Party, but also obviously Trump made it in 2016, which hasn't just been about the human cost of the wars in the Middle East, but the financial cost yes. of them too. Trump was very keen on that argument in 2016. So you can see how you can take that and play it in terms of Ukraine by saying that supporting Ukraine is, is costing a lot of money that could be spent at home. Well, that obviously goes back to, it tells you something very important about America itself and, and that change in perception of your own power and wealth in that we, we've talked about the 1960s being this moment of just extraordinary wealth and power and the opportunity and the sense that there were no bounds to, to, to American power and possibilities. And obviously that gets shattered by Vietnam. And today, I wonder whether that's been shattered by not just Iraq, but obviously then the 2008 crisis. And you see it now on American talk shows, Tucker Carlson interviewing the Republican candidates the other day, and Mike Pence setting out the just traditional Republican interventionist policy to do with Ukraine. And Carlson just sort of shuts him down and goes, have you not been across the United States? Have you not seen every city is crumbling in this Tucker Carlson worldview? We need the money at home. You can't possibly be in favor of sending this money abroad. That's very different, isn't it, to the last 60 years of American foreign policy, that that, that sense that we can't afford it. Yeah, I think that it comes out, though, of the, the legacy of Iraq, and that's the way in which Iraq does cast a, like, a very long shadow over it. I think the reason why we might though also expect this contest about American foreign policy towards Ukraine and by implication then obviously Russia is that within the political class itself there's still a kind of tension between those who think that actually Russia must be defeated in Ukraine and those who think that actually it's a a potential, at least, distraction yep. from the bigger contest with with China. It's a grand version of Afghanistan in a way. Biden saying we need to pull out of Afghanistan to concentrate on our main strategic rivals, Russia and China. Well, you've got people in Washington now, I think, who dismiss the focus on Ukraine as like Eurocentrism. And that's a bygone part of the world. We've, we, you're stuck in the past. If you're overly bothered about Europe, let the Germans deal with the Russians. We've got bigger fish to fry with with China. And, and you can see that. And I, and I guess the other lesson then with Biden, and this is where I'd be worried if I was a Ukrainian at the moment, is that Biden's history, domestic and foreign, is tracking public opinion. So he will be cautious when the Americans are cautious and he'll be more gung-ho when the Americans are more gung-ho. And so if public opinion shifts towards caution and anti-war momentum, Biden is likely to as well. There's concern on the left of the Democratic Party as well as the right of the Republican Party about support for Ukraine. So that would be a cause of concern, that it's already a controversial political moment in, a, in American public life. Yeah, and I think as well, and a lot of this does depend on whether Trump actually is the Republican candidate, but in a way, Trump's got nowhere else to go on the foreign policy 
side of things, but really to double down on this, yeah, we should be compromising with Russia about Ukraine because he can't really use the China question any longer. No, like, in a like, way, because he's won that. The 2016, yeah. he can't really use the Middle Eastern question or the Afghanistan question, which he did for Forever Wars in 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 2016. If he wants to portray the establishment as he wants to present it, as he likes to call it, betraying American interest and not being America first, this is going to be his his rallying call. But I think that what that means is that it's really quite significant what the direction of travel within the Democratic Party is between now and the election. How much of a challenge is there going to be to to Biden and where is it going to come from? And is he going to come under pressure from within the Democratic Party, leaving the Trump issue aside, actually to change tack on Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. And it also reminds me that it's not going to be in Europe where this question is settled, but in Washington and in American in American public opinion. And it's just a reminder sort of how how powerful and influential the United States remains that we are still pretty much dependent on what on, on that and as are the Ukrainians. Thanks for listening to These Times. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and share with your friends and family. In next week's episode, we're going to be returning to the 1970s, this time, though, in relation to Britain. And we're going to be talking to Dominic Sambrook from The Rest is History about the 1970s and what lessons there might be for understanding British politics today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.